us turn to this portion that we've just read here in Isaiah 9 and I want to direct you really to the words that we have, the familiar words that we have in verse 6 but in particular the opening words of that verse for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's been much on my mind I suppose these last couple of weeks since we've heard of the joyful arrival of little Oscar Connolly and we prayed for the child we certainly prayed for the mother we think of Anna who's still suffering we think of Ruth up there trying to help but we do rejoice in the child that's been born that little boy that God in his goodness has granted to Joe and uh, Anna and Albert and Henry and all the family and so as, as I was saying I, I keep thinking of this particular verse or at least his opening words here we've looked at this verse on previous occasions it's one of the great texts that we find in this gospel book of Isaiah and of course it is very much a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God the Everlasting Father the Prince of Peace and he goes on in verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this we've been reading at home in the book of Genesis and the last this morning we were reading in uh, in chapter 18 of Genesis and of course it's that remarkable chapter where we have um, Abraham entertaining strangers unawares three men come to him there to the tent door in Mamre three men and we discover in what follows that uh, two of them are angels but the third is none other than the Lord himself it's a, a theophany really that's what it's the technical term, the theological term it's a theophany, it's a, an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself as a human being in anticipation as it were of the uh, incarnation it's not the only occasion we later will read of, of Jacob and his experience at Penuel where he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord and again it's the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and appears to Jacob there at the brook uh, Jabbok and there are other occasions in uh, Judges 13 we read of uh, Manoah and his wife and they also meets with the angel of the Lord and he does wondrously these appearances and they are strange appearances but they are anticipating something and it's what we have here it's not until the fullness of the time that God had ordained from all eternity that he sends his only begotten son remember the language of Galatians 4 when the fullness of the time was come God sent forth his son made of a woman and made under the law 
back in the Old Testament, he was not yet made of the woman, not yet conceived by the Holy Ghost in the virgin's womb. And what we have here, as I said, is a prophecy. And that God says he will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, we're told at the end of verse 7. And the interesting thing is that the language that we have in verse 6 is in what we might term the prophetic perfect. These future events are spoken of as if they've already happened. Not the future tense, is it? What do we read? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's as if God has already accomplished what will happen in the fullness of the time. And as I've said, there are those events that uh, anticipate the coming of the Son of God in human flesh, in what is the experience of men like uh, Abraham and, and Jacob and Manoah and his wife. Well, I want us to look at these opening words in verse 6, but before we seek to understand them in terms of a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me just say a little bit with regards to the context, the historical setting of the verse. In the previous chapter we read much of Israel and of Judah. Of course Isaiah is ministering after the subdivision of the nation with the ten tribes Israel in the north with their capital at Samaria and, and Judah and Benjamin uh, maintaining Jerusalem as their capital in the south and in the, uh, in the previous chapter we see how Israel in the north has entered into league with Syria against Judah in uh, chapter 8 and there at the end, end of verse 4 we have mention of this child that's born to the wife of the, of the prophet who's to be called Meher Shalashbas and there at verse 4 we have the meaning of the name that was given to the child before the child shall have knowledge to cry my father and my mother the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So here is Damascus, the capital of Syria, Samaria, the capital of Israel, but they're going, they're going to fall. Though they're in league, though they've set themselves against Judah, they're going to fall to the great armies of the Assyrians. God is going to frustrate this alliance that they've uh, entered into. In verse 9, Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. And give ear all ye far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. For God is with us. Or Emmanuel, that's how it rendered at the end of verse 8. We have the land, thy land, O Emmanuel. And of course, it's the same word really at the end of verse 10. God is with, with us. And uh, so all this uh, association, this alliance, as it says in verse 12, say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom these people shall say a confederacy. 
neither fear ye their fear nor be afraid sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread Judah might want to uh, enter into some sort of alliance with Egypt because of the threat of the Assyrians but what is the Lord God saying now to look not to any of the nations round about them but they are to trust in the Lord God and so God is defending his people he's defending Judah and uh, speaking of judgments that are going to come upon their upon their enemies really and so it also continues here in chapter 9 from verse 8 the Lord sent a word unto Jacob and it hath lighted upon Israel and all the people shall know even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria that then speak in the pride and stoutness of their hearts or well, they think that they are going to be able to resist the Assyrians they are going to be able to rebuild whatever it is that the Assyrians might destroy but not so says the Lord God in verse uh, 11 where we really were coming to the end of the portion we read the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Resin against him and join his enemies together the Syrians before and the Philistines behind and they shall devour Israel with open mouth and for all this his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still so the whole context what we have in chapter 8 and what we have here in, uh, in chapter 9 from verse 8 through to that 12th verse it's speaking of a situation that God is pouring out his judgment upon, upon upon Israel to the north and Israel of course does ultimately fall before the Assyrians and uh, the people are scattered many are taken away and it's the end really of the northern kingdom but the amazing thing is that in the midst of all these verses that speak of God's judgment we have this section at the beginning of chapter 9 from verse 1 through 7 which takes us to another situation and speaks really of the promise of the Messiah the promise of the Messiah is what we have in these verses and we have mentioned of course at the beginning of the uh, the land of, of Galilee, Galilee of the nations where the, much of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, takes place during the gospel but then we come to these words in particular in verse 6 and uh, in a sense we have a, a sort of a ascending scale in what is being said you'll notice previously verses 4 Five, and then verse 6 we have the opening uh, word in each of those verses 4 for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's a sort of ascending scale, really. The message of the prophet as the 
servant of the Lord God, what the Lord God will do, and he comes to the climax, really, in the statement that I want us to consider more particularly, as I said here, at the beginning of this sixth verse. What is it that we have here? What do we see? Well, as I say, it's a, a promise of Christ, it's a prophecy of Christ, and here we certainly some, see something of his, his humiliation. The humiliation of the Son of God. And we see it in two ways. We see it with regards to his person, and we see it also with regards to his work. We see it both in the incarnation and we see it also in the crucifixion. First of all, surely we see it when we consider what the incarnation entails. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And there we need to mark the distinction that is so clear in this statement. The child is born, but the son is given. And who was that one who was given? Well, it was none other than the eternal Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, God the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. Who, who was he? Who is he? When the fullness of the time was come, we read, God sent forth his Son. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. He is truly the Son of God. There are others. He is one of the blessings of salvation, of course, uh, that those who are in Christ are the adopted sons of God. But he is the Son of the Father in truth. We have the language of the great Nicene Creed, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made of one substance with the Father. How those words were hammered out, of course, in the midst of great controversy in the early uh, years of this Christian era. The great creeds of the, uh, of the early church. And a plain statement there concerning who this person is. He is God's Son. Unto us a Son is given. And the Jews understood this. When the Lord Jesus is exercising his ministry. How they sought the more to kill him, we're told in John 5, because he not only had broken the Sabbath day, or their perversions of the Sabbath, but he had said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And that was the charge, wasn't it, that they laid against him when they bring him to Pontius Pilate and make their accusation. We have a law by our Lord, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Who is this person then? This son that's not born here. He's, 
is the eternally begotten Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is this that is being spoken of? It is the Messiah, and when Peter makes his confession in uh, Matthew 16, Thou art the Christ, he says, the Son of the living God. Or the, the disciple Peter knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew that the Messiah who was promised there in the Old Testament, the one who would come in the fullness of the time, was the Son of God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as I say, it's a truth that's uh, vehemently contended for in the early church, even at the end of the apostolic age. John has to uh, speak plainly. There in that second epistle of John, verse 9, he says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has the Father and the Son. Or oh, the Christ is the Son of the Father. There is an eternal Father because there is an eternal Son. And there is also, of course, an eternal Spirit. So, who is this one that is being spoken of in prophecy? This one who is being promised in a situation where there's terrible conflict and warfare. All the world there in the Middle East would seem to be in flames at that time. And yet, in the midst of all that we read in chapter 8 and then later in chapter 9 in the midst of all these terrible conflicts we have this great promise concerning the eternal son of God who he was and then also we see what he became he becomes a real man he becomes a real man now he appears in the Old Testament many times as a man but it's not till the fullness of the time that he is actually born into this world. Unto us a child is born. And now we see here what humiliation is involved in the incarnation. Twice it says here unto us unto us a child unto us a son and the language then of the angels at the birth of Jesus there in Luke uh, chapter 2 for unto you that is unto you men unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour which is Christ the Lord oh the Christ is also the Lord he is Jehovah Jesus and who is his message to? Who does he come for? Unto you, that is unto you men. And John says, doesn't he, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We see Jesus. Or the, the language there in that second chapter of Hebrews. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. 
Verily, he took not upon him the nature of angels, but he took upon him the seeds of Abraham. And for as much as the children were partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same. He is the eternal Son of God. God gives his Son, and he becomes a man. We read of God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. God sends his son, God gives his son, he becomes a real man. The great mystery of our religion, the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And we are familiar with the, that great passage in Philippians 2, Christological passage speaking of the doctrine of Christ who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Or oh, the humiliation of the incarnation. The humiliation when we think of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is he's God, yes, but he's also a man. Is uh, the is the last Adam? Is the the second man from heaven? He's the sinless man, but he's a man, a real man. And then, of course, it goes on, doesn't it? There in Philippians, being found in fashion as a man, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he. He's not only seen to be humbling himself when he becomes a man, but he humbles himself in the work that he comes to accomplish. And what do we read here? The beginning of this sixth verse, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be upon his shoulder. I like the comment. It's an interesting comment made by Matthew Poole, the Puritan commentator. He says with regards to this uh, statement about the government being on his shoulder that it's an allusion to the cross of Christ which was laid upon his shoulders. Also, the way to his kingdom or his government, he says. He's, he makes that twofold statement, an allusion to the, to the cross that's laid upon his shoulders, but the cross is also the way to his kingdom. He must go through the way of the cross in order to establish his spiritual kingdom. Now clearly we see him bearing that cross. John 19.17 He bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull. It was called Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue. The place of a skull. And we do sometimes sing that, uh, that lovely hymn. We certainly sung it at the, at the Lord's Supper 950 you're familiar, I'm sure, with the words. It's, uh, it's in the Ingamites hymn book. The Ingamites were Calvinistic Methodists, Methodists up in the 
in the north in Yorkshire and, and Lancashire a little denomination. And Alan and Batty, the authors of this hymn, were both of them Ingamites. What objects is which meets my eyes without Jerusalem's gates, which fills my mind with such surprise as wonder to create? Who can it be that groans beneath a cross of massy wood, whose souls, o'erwhelmed in pains of death and body bathed in blood? Is this the man? Can this be he the prophets have foretold? Should with transgressors numbered be, and for their crimes be sold? Yes, now I know tis he, tis he, tis Jesus, God's dear Son, wrapped in humanity to die for crimes that I had done. And so he goes on to lovely, lovely hymn to read and to, and to meditate upon. But it's Christ bearing his cross. And uh, as the Puritan says, the government upon his shoulder. This is the way to his kingdom. This is the way to his kingdom. What is Christ doing? He's accomplishing, he's accomplishing salvation, of course, by those sufferings upon the cross. As he says uh, to those two on the road to Emmaus, at the end of Luke, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? It is by suffering these things that the Lord Jesus enters into his glory. And what are these things that he suffers? Or oh, the intensity. The intensity. Look at the language that we have here in verse 5. Every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood and that was going on all around at the time with the Assyrians you see destroying Israel in the north and then coming further south and laying siege to fenced cities and even coming to the very gates of Jerusalem every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire or the intensity of those those sufferings that the Lord has to endure and yet by and through all this he's crucified through weakness and yet in that crucifixion he accomplishes a glorious salvation for his people and what we, what we have in verse 4 that was broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian and so there's there's a reference here isn't there to Gideon's great victory over the Midianites back in Judges chapter 7 and remember what the Lord God did in those days in the days of the Judges when he wrought that great victory through Gideon he reduced the army of Israel to just 300 300 and there's a reason the Lord God says it there in Judges 7 2 lest Israel vaunt themselves against me saying mine own hand hath saved me or God can save by many or by few and as there in Judges the defeat of the Midianites by Gideon's 300 and also how the Assyrians 
Oh, how the Assyrians are going to be frustrated and overthrown and we have it later here in chapter 37 and there at verse 33 following remember Ezekiah and Ezekiah's prayers and how God answers his prayers and uh, Sennacherib withdraws his armies and goes back to Nineveh and he himself is killed by his own sons oh God does it it's God's own work and it all directs us to the amazing truth that though crucified through weakness the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished a great salvation now this book of Isaiah is full so much of the Lord Jesus look at the language that we have later in chapter 63 and verse 5 it says and I looked and there was none to help me and I wondered that there was none to, none to uphold therefore mine own hand brought salvation unto me and my fury upheld me and those words that we have at the end of that verse my fury up, upheld me it's, it's God's uh, concern for his own glory he will accomplish these things as we see it here at the end of verse 7 the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this what is God doing there in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ he is he's vindicating his own holy law he is just and yet he's the justifier of all those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that's the great wonder of the salvation that was accomplished but what was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ is that that also must be applied. The one who procures the salvation is the one who also performs it in the souls of his people. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He is the one who is governor. He is the one who is king in Zion. He is the one who applies salvation verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever oh this is our comfort is it not oh the day to us is a dismal dark day it was more difficult in those days when God first gave this word through his servant Isaiah there was real conflict all about them. We bemoan the day, it's a day of small things, there's confusion, there's sin on every hand. But here is our covenant, here is our comfort. The government is upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ and he exercises his authority and he is saving the people. Even in our day. And how does he save his people? Well, as he humbles himself humbles himself both in terms of his person as God man God manifest in the flesh and as he humbles himself in the execution of his work so in the salvation of his people they have to learn humility if any man will come after me Christ says let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Oh, the Lord Jesus, how he, he humbled himself in order to, to conquer, to establish salvation. And again, that passage, we've referred to it already in Philippians 2, that great passage which speaks of Christ, his person and his work. The context, of course, there is one in which he is teaching the importance of humility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who thought it not robbery to be equal with God that made himself of no reputation took upon him the form of a servant how in the covenant of course he's the mediator but he's the Lord's servant he's equal to the Father he is God of God he's begotten not made he's of one substance with the Father there's one God and the three persons Father, Son and Holy Ghost are co-equal and yet though he's God and he thinks it not robbery to be equal it's not something he needs to seize after it is his by right but he makes himself of no reputation or the humility then of the Lord Jesus Christ and as we come to prayer we have to humble ourselves before that throne of grace or oh, it's it's the most gracious place to come. God hears our prayers, our poor prayers. But let us not forget it's, it's a throne. It's the throne of grace. And so we're to come with all reverence. But we can come with great confidence. Because this is the God who rules and reigns. And it is the day of grace. The year of our Lord. The acceptable time. And the day of salvation. Well, the Lord help us as we turn to him in prayer. And the Lord bless to us his own word. Let us now sing our second praise. is the hymn number 737, the tune Buckland 450. Gracious Lord, incline thy ear, my request vouchsafe to hear. Hear my never ceasing cry, give me Christ, or else I die. 737, tune 450.